after a year or two, I tripled or quadrupled my income. And it was really, it was unbelievable. But then after about 20, 25 years of that, I said, you know, I think I can automate this process. The stupidest investment. Because I quit being a recruiter, lost my company. Hello, fellow risk takers, and welcome to my worst investment ever. Stories of loss to keep you winning. In our community, we know that to win in investing, you must take risk, but to win big, you've got to reduce it. This episode is sponsored by ASTOTS Academy's Valuation Masterclass. They call it the boot camp for valuation because it takes almost 150 hours and students must value about 15 companies to graduate. It really is the complete proven step-by-step course to guide you from novice to valuation expert. Go to myworstinvestmentever.com slash deals before March 31st, 2021 to claim your 30% podcast listener discount. Fellow risk takers, this is your worst podcast host, Andrew Stotts, and I'm here with featured guest, Lou Adler. Lou, are you ready to rock? Oh, ready and rocking and rolling. <laughs> well, maybe for a minute or two. And now that I say that, no, I'd rather take a very slow walk. That would be much better, I think. <laughs> so I'll introduce you to the audience and then we're going to get into it. So Lou Adler is the CEO and founder of Performance-Based Hiring Learning Systems a consulting and training firm helping recruiters and hiring managers around the world source, interview, and hire the strongest and most diverse talent. Lou is the author of the Amazon Top 10 Bestseller, Hire With Your Head, The Essential Guide for Hiring and Getting Hired, and also the Performance-Based Hiring Video Training Program. His current Diversity Hiring Without Compromise initiative is focused on developing a colorblind hiring process that ensures the best people get hired regardless of race, religion, age, sexual preference, and physical challenges. Lou, why don't you fill in a few tidbits about your life? Yeah, well, hey, you know, uh, when you read that, I said, geez, who is he talking about? I mean, I, did I do those things? I said, no, that's the fake bio. I didn't give you the real bio. So I won't <laughs> even give you my worst investment ever. So that's why I say this is, I actually wanted to be a stand-up comedian and I paid about a million dollars in training and people gave me my money back so they wouldn't wear jokes. So that was actually turned out to be a good investment. <laughs> and if you buy that one, I might have a bridge for you. Now, I, uh, my background is kind of weird. I started as an engineer, was running a company when I was pretty young, hated my boss, became a recruiter, made a lot of money, thought I could build a scalable system. So I took it all and invested in a company and lost it all. So but had a good time along the way. And it was pretty much the short story and the long story. It took 50 years to make that story. So mm. you know, we can kind of address any pieces and parts of it. But I do live in beautiful Laguna Beach, California, and I'm happy to be here. And I owe it a lot to um, some of the things I did and some of the things I didn't do. Fantastic. Well, I guess let's get into it. And now it's time to share your worst investment ever. And since no one ever goes into their worst investment thinking it will be, Tell us a bit about the circumstances leading up to it, and then tell us your story. Yeah, well, I would actually say, no, I probably went into it known as a piece of stupid thing to do. So, well, probably the stupidest one, which was it, which led to the more stupid one, is I was running a company with 300 people in it, 32 years old, hated my boss, argued every other week, quit every other month, talked to his boss, who was the chairman, and he tried to convince me, and then I just quit. But I was working with these recruiters. So this is 40 years ago, 19, more than that, 42 years ago. So I decided to become a recruiter only because these guys make a lot of money. I mean, literally this recruiter I met was the number one recruiter in the world. When I met him, 
he had a lived in a mansion, had a butler, had two Bentleys, and he invited my wife and I, and I was working 80 hours a week. He invited my wife and I over his house for dinner. And as we're driving home, my wife says, why don't you become a recruiter? <laughs> so this went on when I was, was quitting all the time. So I actually said, yeah, I think I'll do this. And I worked, he and I, and that guy worked together. But when I became a recruiter, I realized that hiring was just like any other business process, making parts. You just had to do it right. And there were so many things done wrong that if you did them right, you could make a lot of money. So that was that after a year or two, I tripled or quadrupled my income. And it was really, it was unbelievable. But then after about 20, 25 years of that, I said, you know, I think I can automate this process. The stupidest investment. Because I quit being a recruiter, lost my company, invested my own million into it, raised another couple of million, lost my company after that. This was in a dot-com boom and everything fell apart. But I still have a house in Laguna Beach and I still have plenty of money. And I decided to create a training company as opposed to a technology company. And actually, I think if I was younger, I probably could start over again. And that, and that idea 22 years ago, was it's now ready for prime time. So, <laughs> so it took me 22 years to realize that, no, nah, the technology just wasn't ready for it. So in many ways, that was the worst and the best, and so be it. So that was it. And the one bad thing about it, and I think I would just skip to everybody, don't take money from friends. Mm. I mean, literally, you will lose your friends even if you win, you will lose your friends because they'll start arguing about it. And I lost all my friends a lot. And that was really the big loss. It wasn't the money. It was the friends. I don't have these friends that were friends for 20 years. I borrowed money from them. They start angeling and then we argued with each other and they walked away. And so that was a, that was a loss. The money was, yeah, you can recover the money. I mean, it depends on what you want, but I do live in Laguna Beach. I've been married 50 years to the same woman, met her in a bar in Southern California when I was 22. So, <laughs> but it was, I was still married and we celebrated our 50th anniversary last month. However, I would say this, that might've been my worst investment. <laughs> now that I've come up with three, I only was starting with one. I used to be perfect. I mean, literally I was perfect 50 years ago. Now I'm the biggest slime bag in the world. I can't believe what happened. Uh, I thought I got better. He thinks I got worse. So now she makes me work out of this cubby hole in the basement of the house. That's not my cubby hole. That's what the, that's where she lives. I live in the, the basement downstairs. So. That reminds me of something I always say. I told my mom, I said, you know, something miraculous happened when I broke up with my last girlfriend. She said, what? I said, I stopped snoring. <laughs> right. Similar, <laughs> similar story. Yeah. So said, nobody noticed it anymore. All right. So how would I you... I got the joke. I mean, Andrew, when you have to explain... Oh, it, I know. I'm, I, yeah. I, I don't have a career. I have a, I'm a radio guy more than a comedian. So yeah, now I can tell that that's for sure. <laughs> now, let me ask you. So let's explain some of the lessons. Let's summarize that. And then I've got some thoughts that I've got on your story. How would you describe the lessons that you learned? The lesson that I learned, I think, is it's good to have a plan. But the plan won't work. And then you get the pressure of someone else's money. Raising money is not a positive thing. You owe that money to those people you just borrowed. So don't add it, I got all this money. No, that's not it. You've just given your life to these people. And no matter how good the planning is, and I could deal with pressure. I mean, I ran a company, turned a couple of companies around with in a lot of different situations. But when you take someone's money, you got to deliver, and those people aren't your friends anymore. 
And mm. it's it's tough. And I think that's probably the lesson I learned. Don't take money from friends if I had to say one thing. Yep. And then when the crisis comes, and this was the dot-com boom. So a lot of people lost a lot of money. I wanted to change the direction of the company. Then they got all pissed off because I changed the direction of the company. And it doesn't matter. I mean, that to me is, it's an arm's length transaction. It's a pure transaction. It's nothing about friends or warmth, the relationships, no matter how competent you are. If you have a good situation, fine. But in the dot-com boom, it was just tough. A lot of people lost a lot of money. And it was a, it was a challenging situation. But you get seduced by doing, ah, oh, I got to do it. I got to try it. And I'm mm. kind of glad I tried it. In some ways, I wish I hadn't. But no, I don't know. You go down these paths and you just got to take whatever lessons you get from the paths. Well, that's quite a lot of lessons. And if I think about it, these are some of the things that I take away. The first thing I take away is I remember the book, The E-Myth by uh, Michael Gerber. He's related to my cousin. I know Michael Gerber. Yeah. You know, the thing that he got across to me in that is that sometimes, you know, we're a great technician. We're really good at doing this thing. And we think, oh, I'm going to start a business doing that thing. And all of a sudden you don't realize that, hey, that's a totally different job. You know, the job of running a business is very different from the job of being a technician. And I think most people don't get that. So that's the one thing that reminded me of that. The second thing that you mentioned, that the technology wasn't really there. There's a company that I, I talk a lot about when I teach about finance and valuation, and that's a company in America called Fastenal, and the, the code ticker code is FAST. But the idea that they developed in 1968 was that they were going to dispense parts for factories through vending machines, and the technology just wasn't there, but now it is. So they had an idea, but you just couldn't do it to the extent that you can do it mm -hmm. now. And so that's an important message, too, about timing. Sometimes it's the wrong time. Great idea, but wrong time. And then the last one that I look at is you just reminded me of one of my episodes, episode 192. The guy is a guy named Sampat, who's from India. And he had a software company and he was trying to raise money and they were putting the money in. Everything was done. But then the money never arrived. And he had to basically go out, pound the pavement, and generate the cash flow to fund his business. And at that time, it felt like it was, you know, awful. But the truth is, he taught me the lesson. It's not cash that it's king. It's cash flow that's king. And you're teaching me that lesson that it's not all glory to raise money. Create the cash flow. Create a profitable business. And then you don't have to lose your friendships or rely on other people. But your business may be smaller, but it's yours. Well, talking about cash flow, and this is a story I told um, just a couple hours ago to somebody. Somebody asked me what my favorite job was. And my favorite job was when I was 27. I was director of business operations for Rockwell International's calculator company, consumer calculator company. First, it was actually one of the first handheld calculator companies. And we made this the first handheld printing calculator. And the whole, we had this one electronic component, which was printhead, doesn't matter, but the yield we costed at it, 60% yield. And the calculator sold for $100, $110 or something that Sears was going to sell it for twice that. And we had 20,000 a month. We were really, this was the, this was going to change our company from 10 million a month to 25 million a month. And it was going to happen in three to four months. And it was exciting. I'm 27, had this cool, cool job. And it turned out that printhead at a yield of 60% was about $8, which was fine. But the yield turned out to be 10%. 
which means the price of that thing was $60, $70, which no profit, we were losing $20, $30. But the cash flow was the problem. We were planning on building 20,000 calculators a month. And the material was coming in the factory. But we only could ship out 2,000 a month. So not only were we putting $60 on it, we were building millions and millions of dollars of inventory. And the company in a year and a half had to write off $120 million of inventory. Nobody was taking account of the cash flow. And it was actually a Harvard case study about that. And somebody, and I read it, somebody said, oh, you used to work at this company to show me the Harvard case study, which is in, let's say the mid eighties. They said it was a marketing issue. No, it was a cash flow management issue. Nobody even thought about all the material coming in the factory because we couldn't produce the part at that yield. It was just an interesting, when you mentioned the cash flow, my investment was a company's investment, but I was there, I was 27, didn't matter, had a fun job, and it was a great experience. Sorry great, about going on, uh, but it was still a good story about managing cash flow. Well, it's a great lesson. I think one of the things I was, you know, I've been a financial analyst all my career, so I look at companies from the outside in, and then I have my own company, which is a, a factory in Thailand that we have had, my best friend and I have had, and he runs for years, and- what I've learned is that most people miss, there's two types of investments you have to make in a business. The first type is generally like a capital investment. You know, you got to buy computers, you got to buy desks, you may have to buy some manufacturing equipment or whatever. That's really the fun and the easy part, but it's the hard part is the investment you have to make in inventory that most people miss. And therefore they think, oh, we're only going to need, you know, $100,000 to do this but they're missing the fact they're going to need 500,000 to manage that cash flow not only the inventory that's on your floor but the accounts receivable that you got to give you know the, the credit that you got to give to your customers and people just miss that so it's a great it's, reminder uh, so here's another reminder of that my next company after that was a company called the Allen Group which was an automotive manufacturing and distribution company and in fact, Walter Kissinger, Henry Kissinger was a chairman. This was a company I quit because I hated the group president. But they were so into cash flow. And this was in the mid-70s. So this company, you, you were budgeted your cash flow. I mean, they budgeted cash flow. And I was VP operations of a manufacturing division. And I remember one month, we had a truck coming in from Long Beach. You know Long Beach, of material coming in. And it was the end of the month. I could not afford on the books, even though I wasn't going to pay for it. I couldn't put light to come in a trunk. I actually locked the gate and there was a truck driver yelling and screaming at me because he wouldn't come in because I couldn't receive those goods and put it in the balance sheet. I mean, it was so stupid. I mean, we're talking about one day, but they managed, you were budgeted cash flow every single month, which was receivables, inventory, working capital, all those things you talk about, Andrew. And I, that to me is, so I kind of thought I knew how to run a business. I didn't know how to run. <laughs> I knew how to run that part of the business, but not getting the all the other stuff coming in. So interesting piece. You got to understand all the pieces. So let's move on now and just ask this question based upon what you learned from this story or stories and what you've continued to learn over the years. What one action would you recommend our listeners take to avoid suffering the same fate? Yeah, that's a good one. I don't, I think I, because I was old at the time. So, so when I lost that money, 52, 53. Now, it had to be 20, so I was 54, so I'm 74 now. I got real conservative. I decided I couldn't do it again. I couldn't force it. So I created a very conservative company and did fine. So it wasn't this huge win, but it certainly. So the lesson I learned was, you know, it was really about the money. 
I mean, is it really about the money? You got to really understand that. And I realized, hey, you know, I'm, I live in Laguna Beach. I mean, in COVID, I can't go outside. That's, I mean, it, literally the police prevent old people from going outside. I would look, I mean, literally, I was looking for fake ID so I could sneak outside. I mean, <laughs> no, no, I'm really 27. <laughs> right. Well, that's what it said. They didn't believe me. So kick me back in the house. Now, it literally, I can't say this. Now, I can't say what I'm about to say because now nah, I, I got in a police cruiser. My, my wife twisted her ankle and they drove us back to the house. And I got in a police cruiser. There's a couple of uh, a while back. That is the most uncomfortable thing in the world. I got to tell you. I mean, it's plastic and you got no seats. I mean, it's, I mean, it's going it's a mile not built for comfort. They are miserable. Maybe yeah. the front seat's okay, but the back seat, no, that's no fun. I don't. That wasn't a lesson I learned about COVID. I don't even know what the question was. <laughs> but, no, I think it's the fact that people go out for all this money. And maybe the lesson learned is, is that really what you want? Mm. Because once you get to a threshold of enough money, it's what you do with that money in the rest of your life that's important. And if I made more money, yeah, maybe I'd, I mean, I'm a quarter of a mile from the beach. Would I really be happier if I was a half a mile to the beach and had a, mm. a, a hundred yards and had a better view? Would I eat more? No, I still travel the world, at least normally. I do nice things. So there's a point in time where you got to say, okay, what really is it? And then you're driven just by getting money or you're driven by something else. And I think that to me is a lesson that no, most people don't learn. And I, you know, how do you put it in balance? I'm not one to judge other people's value systems, but to mm. me, it's part of the thing you got to do. Yeah. It uh, reminds me of a song by Bob Dylan called Bob Dylan's Dream, where he's talking about the fun of youth and the, the carefree nature of being in a room with your friends and all that. And then later he says, at the end of it, he says, you know, each one of them I've never seen again. And mm. the idea is, is that I think one of the lessons that I take from what you've explained is separate this concept of friendship from business. And if you're going to raise money, go out and do it professionally and do it with the people that are the professionals rather than trying to do it with your friends because you could lose your friendships. And I think the message I'm getting from you is it's just money, but relationships are a huge key. So, right. well, last question. What's your number one goal for the next 12 months? Besides just getting on the beach. Yeah, well, that would be great. I get my vaccination shot. Now, I think I right now I do have a real business, which I'm writing the fourth edition of Hire With Your Head. On the subtitle, Hire With Your Head, a using performance-based hiring to build outstanding diverse teams. Writing a book is very, very challenging. I just got a, an email from the person who's going to, the Harvard professor who's going to write the forward for it. But nonetheless, so that's my personal goal is to do that. As you get older, it's waking up every day, exercising and just moving forward and valuing what you have and appreciate it. And particularly, and I think as an old person, older, I don't think my wife and I or people our age are as affected by COVID, at least in the United States. Mm. And grandkids who haven't seen their friends in a year, mid kids going to high school, kids going to college, meeting people, starting out with work. I mean, this is huge impact on their lives. I, it's, I mean, it's uncomfortable and you get cabin fever and all this, but you got to value what you've got and they've got to make up some lost years. And I'm, I'm hopefully, my goal is to hopefully that we can make up those lost years and see some interesting things happen. So yep. I want to yep. be around to, to watch it. So I'm, my Fantastic. goals are pretty small right now. So yep. thank you for asking. Fantastic. Well, listeners, there you have it. Another story of loss to keep you winning. 
Remember to go to myworstinvestmentever.com slash deals to claim your 30% podcast listener discount on the Valuation Masterclass. As we conclude, Lou, I want to thank you again for coming on the show. And on behalf of ASTOTS Academy, I hereby award you alumni status for turning your worst investment ever into your best teaching moment. Do you have any parting words for the audience? No, I would say uh, be good and be safe. Beautiful. Thanks, everybody. Thank you, Andrew. Thanks. That's a wrap on another great story to help us create, grow, and protect our well fellow risk takers. This is your worst podcast host, Andrew Stott, saying, I'll see you on the upside.